0: Welcome to the Coaching Uncovered podcast. My name is Brent Davis, and this is my podcast where coaches come to talk about coaching. And I am pumped to 2021. Um, got one of the best guests I think I've had on so far. Apologies to my previous guests, but I think um, I'm really excited about this one here. So we've got Dr. Allison Kurt on the line today. Thanks for coming in and speaking to me today, Allison.
1: Absolutely, Brent. It's so great to see you, and thanks for having me on your podcast.
0: Uh, I was um, taking down some notes on the things that we can talk about, and I think I stopped at about page three, so this might be the longest podcast on record, but um, we can certainly get you back for part two at some stage in the future. But for those that don't know you out there, can you tell us a bit about yourself?
1: Most certainly. So I live in Los Angeles, California, and I'm a PGA of America Master Professional and a LPGA of America Master Professional. And I'm the director of instruction of a club out here called Wood Ranch Golf Club. And I also have a doctorate in clinical psychology. So I'm a licensed psychotherapist. And basically what my my world looks like is teaching and coaching other golfers by day. And then in the evenings, I work with athletes of all sorts of backgrounds and individuals and high performers um, to help them help perform their best and work with any sort of clinical issues or past traumas or Um, performance elements that they'd like to try to improve. Um, So that's sort of my nighttime job, if you will. And then wrapped somewhere in between all of that is being able to play at a high level. So I still love to compete. I've played in about seven LPGA majors in the past nine years, Um, Been player of the year four times in Southern California, and then was on the inaugural PGA Women's Cup this past uh, 2019. So still really active in terms of playing. So if you look at that whole spectrum of me, it's coaching, helping players be their best, and then having some fun myself and still competing.
0: Oh, that's really cool. I think with that that playing rec- that playing background, playing in those type of tournaments, you probably um, scared some of our Australians in that uh, PGA Cup that you played in. That would have would have scared them off, I think, seeing that type of player um, in the the um, competitors team. So that that's um, that's really cool. I'm keen to start he said, because college golf is something that's intrigued me as an Australian because we don't have that over here. We don't have that experience. So can you talk me through what college golf is like in the States and what your experiences are like over there playing college golf?
1: Most certainly. So usually the college golf process almost begins when a player is in uh, their freshman or junior or their freshman or sophomore year, first or second year at the high school level. And it's it's really this great opportunity to continue your education, but also play at a level um, slightly above high school level before someone might decide to play professionally. And so international players are actually quite popular coming to the States to play in in college. And I had at Florida State University, uh, several international players um, that were teammates of mine. And it was just a really neat opportunity to go through the recruiting process, to look at schools that match my intended um, study backgrounds, schools that based on their ranking and how they competed at um, national championships where they fared, and then what area of the country I wanted to explore. And for me, I come from a state called Missouri. So it's right in the middle of the United States. And I wanted to travel somewhere to a coast to see palm trees and beaches and ocean. And that landed me at Florida State. And playing college golf was fantastic because it taught me how to travel across the states, how to play against people who were significantly better than I, universities that were number one, number two in the country, playing some of the biggest events, And then to have access to resources that I hadn't had before, such as personal trainers to work on fitness, um, sports psychologists to help with mental game, ability to get equipment that fit me, um, have the best gear, make sure that I had everything that I needed to perform um, great. And through that, through my service to the school, playing at a collegiate level, then my education was covered. So it was nice to have a full scholarship to be able to get that education from Florida State. So I, I would say culturally now, um, college coaches are almost looking in middle school, which is grades six, seven, and eight. Um, and they're sort of recruiting really early on and keeping their eyes on juniors that are 10, 11, 12 years of age, um, hoping that they go to college before wow. they go to the professional level. So it's it's quite- um wow, that's crazy. It's, I had
0: a, that's- yeah, that's cool. I had a small amount of experience with it when I was coaching in Taiwan. We took some, our team over to the Junior Worlds and they um, came out. The kids from Taiwan were quite quite talented and I came through with a pile of college coaches cards. But it, was, it surprised me with the rules that they had. They couldn't get off the cart path. They couldn't approach the players. There was only certain times they could approach the players in a certain Amount of times that they could actually talk to the player, so that was that was that was a strange experience coming from Australia. We just we just don't have that situation over there. So, how did you find combining the study? Because obviously, you're a high performer in that area with the competing and the and the playing of golf at the same time. <laughs>
1: It was pretty challenging having a lot of different responsibilities, not only as a student athlete, but then the classes that I was taking and then reporting to practice and and having someone tell me what to do, whereas in high school, you're sort of on your own kind of figuring things out. But there's so many great resources out there to help us build time management as student athletes um, that eventually after my first year, I was able to kind of balance and um, manage everything as is, is pretty accessible as possible, making sure that I had enough quality classes and that they were challenging enough. And I was getting the educational pieces that I needed, but then also allowing myself an opportunity to rest. Because in college, we're experiencing a lot of different opportunities and getting enough rest and having proper nutrition is certainly very, very important. Um, it was very difficult, but I think that certain personalities such as myself um, have a high level of self-discipline. So being able to determine what's really important for me, um, making sure I'm making good choices about how I'm spending my time and budgeting my time. I figured um, I actually did a pretty nice job of that in college. And that really catapulted me um, to my uh, post-college life, taking on lots of different roles and responsibilities and still being able to balance that plus family um, rule, you know, regulations and things that I'm trying to manage.
0: So steering clear of the parties of the college parties over there <laughs> probably a, a safe thing to avoid. Um, so, talk me talk me through your PhD research. I'm curious of what you actually study there. So you went down a family trauma type area with your masters, from what I can gather, but your PhD was a bit more sports psych focused.
1: So my master's came from a university called Pepperdine University, and I had a master's in clinical psychology, and the emphasis was in marriage and family therapy, which is basically A fancy name for interpersonal relationships. So people to people relationships, which we see that a lot in sports, and we see that a lot in golf. Um, And that allowed me the avenue to be able to sit for my licensing exam and to have a license to help people on a clinical basis. Because here in the States, we have regulations for psychologists and psychotherapists and how you can work with people. And after I received my master's degree, I definitely wanted to continue on that trajectory to earn a doctorate. And so my doctorate is in psychology, we call that a PsyD. And the focus is in clinical psychology, but there's a concentration in sports psychology. So the bulk of my Um, Doctorate degree is all in the clinical aspects of psychology, and then I added in the focuses of sports psychology. So when that got time to pick my dissertation topic, I certainly wanted to make it near and dear to my heart, which is uh, looking at golfers and the experiences that they have on the golf course and how it can hurt um, or help their performances moving on. And we call that athletic trauma. And athletic trauma are these events that really stick with us. They're emotionally charged events. Um, They're events that typically run rampant in our mind. And we oftentimes are triggered later on from those events. And they can certainly impede our performances moving forward. So um, in my research, I did two case studies with two different type of uh, level golfers, one being a professional and one being a mini tour player and looked at how their confidence and their anxiety was measured before any sort of treatment. And then I did this particular treatment called eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which is EMDR. And it's a treatment that's used globally, not just in the States. And it's really helpful for post-traumatic stress disorder, um, as well as a plethora of other sort of disorders such as anxiety or depression, or, or, or strictly just in performance. And I used this treatment on these two different case studies, and then I measured their confidence and their anxiety after. And and of course, the results, which I had predicted, was their anxiety decreased after having the treatment and not being impacted by their traumas, but their confidence definitely skyrocketed. So if we take that to um, just the average club player um, or uh, just a a regular recreational golfer, there's going to be shots that you hit that really stick with you, negative shots. Maybe you hit it off to the right and it's embarrassing, or maybe you were winning a tournament, but on the last hole you played really awfully and then you ended up losing. Um, Something that could trigger your shame, something that triggers anxiety, and that stays with us in a particular part of our brain. And then as we start to play golf in different environments, sometimes we become re-triggered, reignited, based on that memory. And it can really hurt our performance. And so that was the area of my study for my dissertation, which is carried on into my private practice today. And most of the clients that come and see me have some sort of athletic trauma that they're trying to overcome. Um, and so those, that's my preferred population that I end up working with.
0: I think that's just about every golf, isn't it, has some sort of athletic trauma going on in the background. They've, um, they've certainly had, had, had those experiences that are, have burnt into the psyche, which I'm sure you you have some fun dealing with those issues. So so talk me through this EMDR um, training, so to speak, and how that actually works and how you go about using that with your clients.
1: So EMDR is something that only an individual that has a medical license, um, such as a therapist or a psychotherapist can use. So we'll put that on the table. You can't just YouTube it, learn how to do it and start treating other people. Um, There's definitely hours that are accrued and supervision that's accrued um, and a lot of education to be able to use this type of treatment with people. Um, But the idea is when we think of how trauma impacts the brain. So let's say we have a shot on the golf course that we shank. So we hit it straight off the hosel and it goes off to the to the right for a right handed golfer. And it's entirely embarrassing. And that event is so emotionally charged in our brain that it's really difficult for our brain to process it because it has so much emotional qualities to it, so much emotional components. And because it's so emotionally charged, it's hard for our brain to process it, digest it, break it down, move it from short-term memory into long-term memory. So it essentially ends up being a stuck memory. And... All of us have stuck memories to some degree, and it can be outside of the golf arena. Maybe um, in second grade, something embarrassing happened or you tripped in front of the class or someone called you a name and everyone laughed. You know, we have these experiences that stick with us. And so if we think about it in terms of performance, we tend to have some sort of um, experience like that that's really emotionally charged. It ends up becoming stuck. Now, when we don't have stuck memories and we have just regular memories, like I made a three-foot putt or I won a golf tournament, when we go to sleep at night, our brain starts to digest and process these memories and file it back into long-term memories. We can access it later on. And in stage four of our sleep patterns, our eyes, called rapid eye movement, our REM sleep, our eyes move back and forth behind our eyelids, and that's the opportunity where our brain is taking information and it's putting it back into long-term memory. It's digesting everything. All right, so that's kind of the basic of what's happening with our brain. Now, if I have a traumatic memory in a waking state, in a conscious state, I can work with a therapist, recall the memory, all the different sensations and feelings that I have in my body, The belief that I have about that too, maybe I'm not good enough or I'm an awful golfer or I'm going to choke. And I hold these things in my mind. And then if I move my eyes back and forth very quickly, it stimulates what would happen if I was in that sleeping state. So I'm able to digest and process in a conscious state that awful trauma, those sensations that are stuck. And it's really quite fascinating to see individuals who have maybe carried for a really long time these really heavy emotions, being able to move it, being able to walk through it, being able to digest it. And in the safety of the therapeutic room in the container of the room and having someone to talk through this this memory with or memories, they're able to process in a healthy way and unstuck that memory. So that it no longer becomes a trigger and no longer interferes with someone's ability to play their best golf or operate through life. Um, So there's there's a multitude of different um, scenarios that can be processed, but it's the ability to move the eyes back and forth, which recreates that REM type movement that sort of mixes things up, digests it, breaks it apart, and then having some talk therapy to be able to understand what it means. Um, to that person is really kind of this all-inclusive way to help someone overcome these 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 memories. And in the United States, EMDR is actually a preferred treatment modality for many of our veterans. Individuals who are going to war and have had these really emotionally charged experiences and sights that they've seen, they bring them back to their home life and they really get um, impeded by them. And so EMDR is a great way for individuals with PTSD to overcome some of those situations. And, it, of course, it's been transferred into sport, and now we're starting to see it in performance, um, looking at how to clear out all of these blocked memories so that a player can play their best.
0: It's awesome. How, how do your clients react when you bring some of this information to their training? Because I'm sure you're like every other golf coach out there. They all come and they say, fix my slice or fix my swing. Um, If you start to bring some of this other stuff in, which obviously is, is great information, how do your clients take that on?
1: I definitely have to read the client to see who's a good candidate for this type of work. And um, typically, as I get to know somebody and I build rapport, I can really feel the energy in the relationship. What, rather, if this is someone who's a potential client and maybe has some suck issues and some suck memories that are impeding their performance, whether they're just um, having issues with belief system and maybe they don't need EMDR, but they need some more sports psychotherapy type help. And I would say that once people hear what this can help them do, most everyone's quite quite interested. Now, you can kind of hook them in, but then when you actually get into treatment, it's a different story. Because to actually look at the vulnerability and look at the weakness that we hold inside of us can be very scary. And it can be quite troubling. And it's hard for people to open up. Um, certainly having trust is really important. But hard for them to open up and face and look at some of the things that are quite, quite disturbing. You know, we all have locked away in our memories, some pretty horrific things that we've seen or done or experienced. And to be able to go back and face them can be very, very challenging. So um, it's not for everybody, but it's for the treatment is for people who really want to not be held back from their past, and they really want to move forward from their past.
0: That's cool. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly hearing there that that trust between yourself and the student is extremely important. If you don't build that trust early on, you're going to certainly struggle to bring that sort of coaching into the, the, the coaching sessions that you do with those students.
1: Most certainly. And it's almost easier, I would say, to work with someone that I don't know. Um, So if someone approaches me with a trauma um, through the lens of wanting to work with me in psychology, that's almost easier than if I have a golfer I've been working with for a year who now wants to work on some traumas, you know, then it's like, wow, this person knows a lot about me. I'm not sure I want to open this part up to, to, um, you know, my golf coach, which I can completely understand. So when, when I have clients approach me, uh, we always talk about what's the ability, what's the comfort level in facing some of these really vulnerable things that are holding you back, but could also really elevate you in terms of performance if you're able to get past them.
0: Yeah, makes sense. Um, Doing – following you for a while now on social media and seeing some of your stuff out there, you talk about student-centered approach to coaching quite a bit in all your communications, all your different things out there. What does that mean to you if you're talking about that?
1: A student-centered approach takes everything that the student already has, their abilities, their strengths, their weaknesses, their limitations – and then builds a golf swing with what they have. So rather than me having one model and fitting everybody into one model, I basically serve as a chameleon, if you will, trying to match the student and meet the student where they're at. So in the thousands of lessons that I've taught in the past 16 years, not everybody can make every type of move. We certainly see on the PGA and the LPGA tour a variety of different moves that it creates a lot of success, but they all have different abilities, limitations, mobility, uh, flexibility. And so student-centered takes a student's strengths, takes what they have already and builds something even better. And I think that's a great way to coach because oftentimes students come saying, I don't want to overhaul everything in my swing. I just want to fix this one thing, or I'd like to change this ball flight to be more playable. That's great. We don't have to overhaul everything. Take what you have and let's make it just a little bit better. And that's basically a student-centered approach. And there's actually more of a client centered approach in the field of psychology, which was Carl Rogers, a famous psychologist, Which sort of took that similar approach as well. Meet the client where they're at, wherever they're at in their life, their strengths that they have, their psychological strengths, their psychological flaws. Meet the client where they're at, help them through their journey in order to be their best. So I find that it's a really great tandem between how I approach psychology and how I approach my golf coaching.
0: Great. So as a coach, how do you work out which parts of those weird swings that you see on the on the coaching tee, which parts are working, which parts aren't working? Which How do you d- determine which things to fix or change?
1: For me, it starts purely with ball flight. So if we take away everyone's uniqueness, their individuality, and we strictly look at the objectivity of the ball flight – There's going to be different types of ball flights that are playable and then ball flights that are not playable. Not playable ball flights are going to include penalty strokes. They're going to get us off the fairway, miss greens. So what can we do to align the club face in the right position to have a playable ball flight? And a playable ball flight does not mean only straight It can have some curvature. It can have a little bit of spin axis. It can move off the green a little bit here and there, but ultimately it starts to work itself back towards the target in a place where a player can shoot um, the best that they can. So as I'm looking at a swing, of course, my eyes might be attracted to that doesn't look right, or that doesn't seem to fit the the model of, let's say, a, a standard golf swing, whatever that really means, I look at ball flight and I look at the club face and the moment of impact. And then I start working myself backwards. So if I can predict what impact looks like, either through measurement, using flight scope, um, using high speed cameras, then I can say, well, what's causing the club face to be in this particular position? What's causing the golf club to travel in this particular position? And then I start looking at where the hands are placed, in what sequence the body is moving, where the arms are positioned at various parts of the golf swing. And now I can start to put together a puzzle and say, what area can I change that is the least invasive for the student, but is going to give us the biggest bang for our buck when we look at ball flight. And it may not be something that we need to change a look. I don't like to change looks of swings, I want to change functionality of swings so that a student can make an, a very efficient motion for them and what their body is capable of doing to create a playable ball flight, hopefully ending it back to the target and the least amount of strokes possible.
0: I like it. I like it a lot. I think that's um, that's a really really cool coaching strategies to have in there. So, um, I'll be stealing some of those ideas from my own my own coaching now. So that's that's really a cool thing. Now, explain to me for all the work that you've done throughout your career, how in God's name do you still manage to play at the highest in the highest tournaments and also coach and also do your research? Why have you gone down that path? Because I'm just curious. Because generally coaches will stick down one particular path and you're you're still competing, you're still playing, you're still coaching, you're still doing research. Why have you gone down that path? Explain that to me.
1: It's what got me into golf to begin with. So playing and being a competitor started when I was seven years of age. And the feeling that I received by getting a trophy or winning or competing and trying to shoot my lowest, shooting my lowest, losing a whole bunch, making a whole bunch of mistakes and then learning from that and trying to be better moving on. That's where my roots in golf started. And so I'm very fortunate that I was able to create a life in golf where I can share what I've learned in my experiences with other people to try to make golf a bit more simpler, a bit more fun for them but I never wanted to really abandon my roots in playing. It earned me my education. Um, it brought me to where I'm at today in terms of the golf industry. And it's always something that I find that I can never perfect. You know, there is no perfect in golf. Even if you shoot your lowest score ever, um, mine's 65, I'm still always going to go out there trying to seek a 64 or a 63. Um, even players who have shot that 59, you know, Annika Sorenstam is returning back to golf today. Today's her first competitive round from, from retirement. She has shot 59. Don't you think at some point she's thinking, I'm going to shoot 58. So what's what for me is motivating in golf is that there is no perfect. And no matter how hard I try, there's always an opportunity to be better. And so I feel like it's a never ending story for me. And there was only one point in my golf career that I was truly burned out where I didn't want to practice. I was done competing and just didn't feel like I wanted to pick up a club and go work so hard. And that really only lasted for about a year right after college. And then eventually that fire really reignited and it hasn't been put out since. So when I look at how to budget my day, I know that in order to play at the level that I want to play, I have to make sacrifices, whether that's going to work early to get my practice in or staying at work late or scheduling my own practice in. And I make sure that I'm accountable to keep my skills at the highest level. And I think my students appreciate that as well. So if I'm demonstrating and I'm talking about something that they should do in their swing, I should be able to showcase it. So keeping my skills sharp is extremely important. But the, the rise that I get out of competing and the feeling, the competitive fire that still burns, I have to feed that. And so I'm just going to keep taking it going as far as I can with it.
0: That's really cool. I'm curious about my own personal ideas of how much playing ability impacts coaching ability. It's somewhere where I'm keen to do some research to find out because I'm kind of heading down that path that I think to a certain degree you have to be able to show the skills, as you said, but I think um, communication skills and understanding Coaching, I think, is possibly a little bit more important than being a a, a, a superstar player, so to speak. But um, yeah, it'll be. I'll be curious. You had head down that path. So keeping keeping in that in that same same frame there. So obviously playing and coaching at the same time, doing lots of research and understanding golf swing. I've seen papers out there that tour players when they play don't have too much conscious thought going on when they're playing. They tend to switch off the brain. How do you deal with the coaching information that you've got inside your head, getting in the way of you just going out and playing?
1: For me, I'm quite lucky that it's never really interfered. My knowledge about the golf swing and the mechanical side has never really interfered with my playing side. If anything, it has helped and elevated my playing knowing more about the causes and effects of the swing. So if I hit a shot in competition and it doesn't go where I want it to, I have a pretty accurate assessment of what happened. And so then I'm able to correct and try to make a change before my next shot. I don't find that the hats get, as I put my player hat on or my coach hat on, that they start to intermingle. I feel for me, I'm very segmented when it comes to playing. These are the things that I've had. And remember, I got into golf first as a player before I ever was a coach. So in the 32 years of competition, I've been a player first and foremost, and I've been a coach for 16 years. So I think I have a pretty good segmentation of that. Um, But it does elevate my ability to manage my swing on the golf course. Certainly my psychology background has allowed me new skills to manage my, my psyche and my mentality on the golf course. I wish I had those skills back in college or junior golf days for sure. Um, and so I, I just do a really good job of, of breaking those two pieces off. You know, and in fact, the question that I get a lot is how can I see so many different and unique swings and high handicap swings and not let that interfere with my own golf swing. And I, I almost feel like, you know, I, I see so much of what not to do. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I see so much inefficiency. I know what efficiency looks like, so if anything, it's quite helpful to know that I'm never going to swing the golf club like that because I know how inefficient they can be. <sighs>
0: Don't do that one. I'll do this one over here, and I'll steer clear of those of those bad swings. No, that's that's really cool, really cool. Because I just I just thought that'd be a really tough thing to do to be able to have all that information inside your head on golf swing, and especially sports like as well. Because you've gone down that that study path and be able to switch it off just to go out and play. Because as you, I'm sure you're aware more than anyone, if we can turn it off and just play, you certainly improves your performance out there. So. This is something that this might actually blow the whole podcast up. It might go another hour. So well we'll see how we go with this with this question. But I'm curious being a female in golf, um, obviously it's a it's a sport that's been pretty heavy heavily dominated by by guys. Um what are some of the obstacles that you've found in your career so far?
1: Yes, there was actually a wonderful article that appeared in Golf Digest, um, probably at the end of 2019 or earlier 2019, that was titled, uh, A Skirt Amongst Khakis. Basically, when you're the only female in the room, what does that feel like, whether you're a member of the PGA of Australia, PGA of America, just walking into any sort of place that is dominated by men and being the only female, it's certainly hard. Um, It's a great article that Golf Digest worked with me on. And I invite everyone to go to to go Google it and take a look because I do talk about some of my experiences there. And I've had tons of positive experiences in this industry, but there's always going to be we talk about traumatic memories. There's always going to be those memories that stand out that didn't feel so good. And so um, early on in my career, I worked at a high end private facility that super male dominated, a lot of people, a lot of money. Women definitely did not have equal privileges at the club, separate places to dine, separate um, areas for everything. Uh, the quality of golf tournaments between men and women were completely different. Men's were much more elevated. Just the, the benefits and the perks were so much different from men. And it just really felt awful. And to feel like you're not equal, to feel like you don't have a chance just because you're a different gender, was not only messing with my confidence, but also messing with my, my self-worth, how I viewed myself. Like, why am I not good enough, even though I'm doing all of these things, to be a great employee, to educate myself, to be an upstanding member of the LPGA and the PGA, How is that not allowing me to climb the ladder to success or to move into a head professional position or a director of golf position? And it certainly was the culture that I was in that was very toxic and very masculine. And The more confident that I became in myself, the easier it was to walk into a room and know that I was going to be the only female in the room, whether it was at a PGA meeting um, or some sort of webinar or some sort of seminar, I should say. Um, And certainly in my early 20s, I wasn't as confident walking into a room, you know, kind of looking around saying, is there anyone in this room like me? No, I became a little bit more introverted. and um, But over time, people began to recognize me and I created friendships. And then it really didn't seem like um, it was that much of a difference. But even to this day, it's so interesting when um, I work in PGA governance, how there's always seems to, um, as we're trying to include, be diverse and inclusive, that there's always like one token female. There might be a committee. Oh, we need to have a female on it. Um, And it would be great someday in the future if it was, hey, we need half the amount uh, we need as equal men as equal women on this committee. You know, we need five and five Um, or let's have the, the board of officers look like and resemble our communities, not only in race, but in gender. And so I think we're moving in that direction, which is fantastic. There's initiatives and programs out there that are really trying to allow an equal playing field for everybody. Um, But it certainly wasn't always that way in my career. And so those challenges I have have overcome. And then there's just challenges that sometimes you cannot overcome and you have to find you basically have to go find a different field to play on. If they're not going to let you play in this field, you have to go find a different team and one that accepts you and embraces you for the strengths that you, that you bring with you, the characteristics you bring with you, uh, your morals and your values. And so I've been really lucky in Southern California. Um, we're very liberal. Uh, we are very um, inclusive of everybody. And I know that's not the case in all across the U.S. or even across the world.
0: We certainly don't want to go down that politics path at the moment in the U.S. It's, uh, it's a strange, strange scene over there at the moment. I don't, um, I don't envy you guys over there at the moment. It's not a, a fun, a fun time to be involved in politics in general. I don't think over there. Um, so, just to change the subject, there, just to go further to that point, there, you said to help cope with with those situations, you improved your confidence. What did you do to actually improve that? What did you? is it just something that you just said to yourself that I'm going to step in there as a confident person or how did you go about improving the confidence to go into those situations?
1: Yeah, I wish it was as easy to say, oh, I'm just going <laughs> to uh, wave my magic wand and here I go. Um, for me, it was I had to figure out how to position myself and elevate myself. And for me, that was education. So within the PGA of America, we have 39,000 members. And so I wanted to figure out, out of this 39,000, we have a little under 3,000 women. So definitely the minority. And what can I do to stand out and to have the upper hand? So for me, that was education. And that's when I started to go down the path of earning my master's in clinical psych and my doctorate in clinical psych, and then to be able to study and help people in a way that nobody else can. And when I felt like... I made myself so segmented that I had this special niche. It made me feel confident because it was like, I can do this and no one else can because I put myself in that position. Um, I do think that playing really well helps at times. Certainly there's some maybe jealousy from, from some men who don't feel so good after maybe losing um, to a female, but more men than not really respect A female who can move their golf ball around the golf course. So that helped as well, because then I was viewed as a great player. I was viewed as someone who has put my time in, in terms of education to really try to help golfers be their best. And once I started to build those skills within myself, then my confidence grew. It also gave me better platforms to talk on, I became more approached to speak at education seminars, such as being able to um, work with the PGA of Australia. So it gave me a platform to share my expertise. Um, that certainly builds one confidence as well.
0: And that's, um, so how can we improve it? As, as the game of golf in general, how can we make this better? I don't know I've, I've spoken to Sue Shapcott about this and there's an episode of the podcast with Sue. Sue she's a PhD as well and she's got some really great information. And um, she talks about could we, we still call them female golfers and like we're all just golfers, we're all just coaches. How do we, how do we change this in, in the, the, the golf industry in general?
1: it's very complex. And there's so many wishes and wants that contradict each other. So it's like on one platform, we want to be recognized. But on the other element, we're saying everybody should be equal. So it's like, no, wait a minute, they're kind of like two opposing statements there. Um, It's like, I want to be recognized, but I also want to be treated equal. And I think that what we need to get away from Um, we need to honor everyone's uniqueness. We need to honor all genders, all races. We need to just honor that. And we need to give opportunity to everybody. So when we look at marketing and media, there should be a higher level of awareness of the images that are being put out in magazines, on social media. And I think we're doing a better job of that in commercials. Um, in between competitions on TV, what do those commercials really show? Is it a lot of white male players or are we adding in different races, different backgrounds, women, kids? And then we start to see that those images reflect our communities much better. I also think that in hiring processes, that we start to give equal opportunity to women in positions of power, like director of golf or head professional, and that we really look closely at all the candidates that come through. Um, We have to check our biases though. And so those that are hiring um, oftentimes can wear blinders and they may not even know it. So education in inclusion and diversity can be very helpful across the industry, across the golf industry as a whole. Um, Giving opportunities to individuals that are qualified for it, not just handing them out, but really allowing individuals that are qualified the opportunity um, to lead. We had such a great opportunity recently when Susie Whaley became the first female president of the PGA of America. It was amazing, it was huge. And that elevated our brand, and it elevated women getting into higher levels of governance. And it took a leader like that um, to start to change the face of what golf looks like, to resemble it more like our communities. I wish it were a simple five-step process, like just do this, and we'll start to have a little bit more equal playing field. Um, but you're you're right with your statement that you know we look at women golfers or male golfers, and why don't we just look at golfers? That's one of my beefs when it comes to equipment. We should, in my opinion, do away with women's clubs, senior clubs, and men's clubs, and just have golf clubs that fit your swing speed and your height, no matter what gender you are. Um, So just a a couple of ideas, if you will, on the soapbox of... (laughs) Gender equity
0: that's, in the golf industry. Uh, I think <laughs> I certainly think that's a it's a whole podcast in itself, and I think I might look to get some sort of panel together at some stage in the future, and um, I'll uh put you on that hit list now to come in and have a have a panel chat about that whole topic because I think we could go for a couple of hours without without too many issues with that. Um, but I do like the idea of club fitting and I used to fit Henry Griffiths clubs in Australia years ago and they had a color-coded system as opposed to having certain flexes, and that seemed to work quite well because sometimes you have to fit a, a slower swinging uh, senior golfer into a quite a flexible shaft so that putting them into a color-coded shaft so they don't understand what that it's a so-called ladies club um, that tends to that tends to help with that club fitting process so i certainly like that idea
1: that's a fantastic idea if we bring that even back to tea sets so instead of having women's teas and men's teas we know that we just have colors and we have distances and I love how some golf courses here have painted all of the tee markers the exact same color so let's say they're all silver they're all gold and they use them based on numbers so today you're going to play the number four tee set you're going to play the number one tee set Um, that really takes away the stigma from having a ladies tee to a men's tee
0: I like it. I like it a lot. Now, I do know you have got a hard out in about five minutes, but we have um, a fast four set of questions I like to ask everybody. So if we can finish off with those. But there's now a fast five. So I don't know if I told you. I've added a fifth question to it. So I don't know if you've checked out any of the episodes before, but we have uh, four or five questions that we ask everybody. So the, the first question is what advice do you have to coaches starting out out there at the moment?
1: Grab... Every piece of education that you can get your hands on, find the one that excites you the most and get really good at that. So if that's fitness, go down the fitness path. If it's nutrition, if it's psychology, if it's biomechanics, find something that you're really passionate about and go become an expert in it. I believe that that's one of the best ways that you can separate yourself and elevate yourself to be the best coach you can.
0: I think that is, it is certainly where coaching is going down that specialist path. I think, I think there is, there's specialist short game coaches now, there's specialist putting coaches, there's specialist sports psychs, there's special, specialist fitness pros as well. So I like that advice. So hopefully there's a few golfers tuning into the podcast as well. So what advice do you have for golfers out there?
1: I would tell golfers that they need to understand club face alignment at impact and how that makes the golf ball go straight, left or right. And when you have a great grasp on that, you then don't become so frustrated when you slice your golf ball or you hook your golf ball. You know exactly what happened. And then you can hook up with a coach to tell you how to make that happen more often or how to make that happen less often. But Golfers need to have a better understanding of what that moment of impact looks like. It doesn't mean you have to be a coach, but you need to know how the golf club plays a role at that moment of impact for ball flight.
0: It's really cool. I've heard um, I heard it said by Andrew Rice, get the face in place. So I think that's a really, really cool little coaching thing. So out there, Andrew, if you're tuning in, you're coming on the podcast at some stage. He's a hard man to track down, but um, I certainly like that. Uh, be club face centered in your in your playing. That's that's pretty cool. Um anything that you would change in your career up until now? Is there anything that you where you've taken a certain path where you go down a different path or is there any changes that you would make? And it's quite acceptable to say no, that's fine as well.
1: Yeah, I think that I probably would have started my continuing education earlier. So when I became a member in 2006, I don't think I really started to attend teaching and coaching seminars, um, get involved in the section or even look at continuing education until... 2009 at least. So there was, you know, at least three years where I don't feel like I learned anything. I was just trying to get involved in the business. And if I think back, um, if I would have started my master's then, if I would have started um, getting involved in um, more sports psychology stuff earlier on, I would be way farther ahead now than I was. And so that's why I always tell people like, don't wait. If you feel like, you're a little stagnant and you really need to learn something new, go do it now. Or I oftentimes will have apprentices or associates who then become members who are like, okay, now I'm done. I'm a a PGA member. I'm ready to go off. And it's like, no, now's the time to keep learning more, to go get more information. So if I would have done something differently, it would have been to not have that break and to start learning a lot earlier.
0: You've stolen mine because I've been putting off my PhD for about ten years. So I would, I would certainly would have started heaps earlier as well. So that's start tomorrow, Brian. Get
1: on it. Start tomorrow.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I have to. I I certainly do. Certainly do. So, where do you see yourself or coaching in five years' time?
1: In five years, I'd love to have a different type of academy. Um, I'd love to have a building that I can put all my technology into, a place to call home. I love the golf club that I'm at. I'm, I'm going on year number seven there. But being in the sun eight, nine hours a day, five days a week really does take a toll on you. And so I'd love to have a facility where I can sit down with a player and have some mental coaching, um, areas. I can be indoors if there's inclement weather. If it's windy or it's rainy, doesn't matter. We can still get our golf done. Um, I'd love to be able to say that I'm a golf magazine top 100 instructor. So I've been working really hard to try to get onto that coveted list over here in the States, top 100 instructor. Um, And then I'd, I'd really like to look back in five years and have qualified a few more times in competitive rounds for the LPGA. Love to add that to my resume and continue to help thousands and thousands of more golfers.
0: Really cool. Really cool. Now, the fifth question that I've added this year, and I think is you're going to be the perfect person to start this off on sources of information as a coach. So, if a coach is looking to find more information, where should they go? What do you use to, to source coaching information to improve yourself?
1: I think it's great that social media has allowed us a ton of access into a lot of people's brains. So I would pick out five of the top world-renowned coaches and then I'd go research them, find their social media, find if they have YouTube channels, find if they have certifications. Um, this whole COVID thing has really sort of pushed people to put their content online. And just in this past year, I have learned so much from people that I normally would have had to learn from them in person. And I was able to do it from the comfort of my office. And so to keep it small, pick five people, five world-renowned coaches that you really idolize and would love to have mentor you and then go find their stuff online and then see which pieces of that really um, ignite your passion. And that's a great, Place to start. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of published material out there, but we don't really have brick and mortar bookstores anymore. Um, a lot of ebooks are out there. I'm also a big Google Scholar person. So if you go to Google Scholar, you can find literally any peer reviewed research article that you want. And um, you can find some really great uh, research based information out there that science has proven is, is
0: great. Awesome. Great advice. So thank you so much for your time today, Alison. I certainly appreciate it. Where can people find you on social media? Have you got a presence out there on social media?
1: Absolutely. Head on over to Instagram, Allison Kurt Golf. I put a lot of stuff up on Instagram and that's certainly on Facebook as well, Allison Kurt Golf. And then you can find my website, which has all my links to everything, plus some tips, some blogs, um, anything, If you want to do remote coaching too, so even people who are not in the U.S., if you'd like to connect with me, whether for mental coaching or for remote swing coaching, we can always set that up. And that's at allisonkurtgolf.com
0: awesome thank you so much i'll put links to all that in the show notes so everyone can get a handle on that certainly worth a follow some great information being shared out there by allison so again thank you so much for your time i certainly appreciate it um awesome to catch up and have a have a have a chat but i certainly think we'll be doing a part two at some stage with some more of diving a bit deeper into some of those areas that we discussed today
1: my pleasure brent thanks for having me on the podcast and we'll do it again soon